You are listening to Chinese-ish, an SBS podcast about young Chinese Australians for young Chinese Australians. My name is Wayne. I'm a journalist and former Chinese international student. I'm recording from Gadigal country. I'm Mark. I'm a fresh out of uni graduate and a young Chinese Australian. I'm recording from Wurundjeri country. In each episode, we will explore a theme that reflects the daily life of a young Chinese person living in today's Australia. And today's episode is our final episode. It's been a pretty solid run, I reckon. I know! I can't believe we've made it. We've explored a lot of interesting topics over the past four months, from Lunar New Year to food to election politics and parenting. What a journey. For sure. And that's why coming up later in the episode, we'll have a bit of a reflection and recap about the podcast that's been. But first, we'll be forging ahead with this episode's topic, which is an experience that's come up a fair bit throughout the podcast. Travelling, going back, going home even, to China. Wing, when was the last time you flew back to China? Oh, don't ask me because I'm about to cry. It was in 2019 before the pandemic and I went back home to visit my parents and my grandparents. I still remember the soup my mom made for me. It was pork ribs with carrots and coins. And I also caught up with my cousins in China and they showed me to all these new buildings and restaurants. It's a weird feeling because you kind of feel that you are at home, but at the same time, you're kind of like a stranger as well because you just keep looking at all these new constructions. How about you, Mark? I agree totally. We go back every couple of years to visit family as well. And the country definitely changes a lot every single time feels like a new place, unrecognizable on each visit. But I also wonder if it's not just the country that's changing, but like me changing as well. I find that every time I go, more and more people comment on how or like not proper my Chinese is. I shouldn't even be surprised anymore, but <laughs> it's the language part. And then I take longer to adjust like culturally as well. So the last time I went to China in like 2018, maybe I went to the shops and a shopkeeper sort of by way of greeting was just like, Yama, like, what do you want? Which would be really odd for a greeting here in Australia. I just sort of felt like I was interrupting them. I felt really surprised by that for a split second. But then I had to adjust and remember that this is actually normal in China. And it was just me that had forgotten. So my point is, I guess it's not just China that's changing, but also how I, or how well I remember its culture. You remind me of those kinds of documentaries which talk about the Chinese diaspora going back to China to find their roots after generations of generations. But for many of us nowadays, especially for the younger generations, you can travel to China all the time, like not necessarily to find roots, but just for travel. Of course, we are talking about this at a big pandemic, so travel could be disrupted. But before the pandemic, many of us will travel back to China, probably for sightseeing or probably just to visit the extended family members. In our episode eight, our guest Lucy she went on an exchange as well. So this is also one possibility for young Chinese Australians to go to China. Yeah, I feel like there's heaps of reasons why diasporic Chinese communities would want to visit China, whether it's you know being carted off with family to visit distant relatives that you'd never heard about or seen ever before, or going back of your own accord for study or work. I think a lot of second-gen Chinese Australians in particular feel a really strong desire to do that, to go back on their own terms and to reconnect with their heritage in some way. But I'm also not sure if there's a really, like, if there actually is a really strong sense of homecoming there. So I guess the questions we're asking today, what does going back to China mean for Chinese Australians who don't necessarily come from there but are born or grew up here? How do they manage culture shocks or other surprises upon visiting? And where or in what contexts do young Chinese Australians feel at home? 
To answer these questions, we're joined today by Catherine Wen, a JD student in Melbourne who frequently travelled to China before the pandemic. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Wing and Ma. Thank you so much for having me on this episode today. I am also recording from Wenjiri Country today. Thank you, Catherine, for joining us. So, my first question is: When was your last time visiting China? What did you do there? Yeah, so it was at the end of 2019, just before the pandemic. I went to Guangzhou alone for a week to visit my relatives, mainly my aunts and uncles. I was really lucky to have two aunts who are retired, so they took me around, showing me all the new sites, new developments, new buildings, and. Of course, most importantly, all the best food places. <laughs> I ate so much, indulging in authentic Cantonese food, especially the amazing yum cha that you just can't get here in Australia. Unfortunately, this trip in 2019 really shocked and surprised me in many ways. So, you know, Guangzhou has changed so much. The modern skyscrapers with so much interesting architecture. I love visiting buildings and architecture and admiring their design. So to see all these new renovated buildings, all these new local public attractions as well. I remember my aunts and my cousins drove us to a nearby city of Foshan, and we visited Qinghui Garden, which was a beautiful garden with Ming Dynasty architecture, and I believe it's one of the four great gardens of Guangdong. I was just so surprised at how accessible. Foshan was,、um, as I remember growing up, hearing that this city was very out of the way and really hard to get to. But my cousin rented a car, and off we went, which was actually another surprise. <laughs> I didn't know my cousin could drive. You know, again, I always had this image that you know not many people drove in China. You know, you either had a chauffeur if you had money, or you took public transport. So all in all, this trip in 2019 was a super eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, that sounds like a range of surprises, right? Had it been like a long time since you'd last gone, or yeah, well, the last time, like before 2019, was 2016, and I think because we were mostly visiting my grandparents at the time, we didn't really travel or explore much of Guangzhou. So in that sense, I didn't get to see all the new and upcoming modern developments. And then prior to 2016, it was probably 2000. Fourteen or two thousand and thirteen, before you know, I started VCE and all that. So, yeah, it just had been a huge surprise of how much it's changed. Yeah, two to three years is a long time, I guess, in China. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> just it's just amazing how much they've changed in those three years each time I went back. Because growing up, when I was younger, you know, we would go back much more frequently. So we'd go back every year. You know, during the summer holidays, we'd always be spending time with grandparents with. Aunts and uncles with my cousins, and we didn't really see that much change. Or maybe it was just because I was young and I didn't really pay attention. <laughs> But you know, being older now, I really do notice those changes. Besides your hometown, did you visit any other places in China? I have visited other cities before. So with my family, I went to Beijing and Shanghai and Suzhou, Hong Kong and Macau. But I don't really remember too much about these places as I was still very young. But actually, before I went to Guangzhou in 2019, I was actually in Taiwan with my partner, so、um, I got to explore a bit of Taiwan. So that was very interesting. Never been there before, and just the blend of different cultures. You know how with history, Taiwan was occupied by different people. So yeah, it was great to explore a different side of China that I haven't seen before. 
your 2019 trip, you kind of went without your parents, right? Did that make a difference to the trip for you? Oh, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. I think when you travel with your parents, it's very, it's a very different vibe. When you're traveling alone, you know, you get to pick all the places you want to go to. You get to choose all the food that you want to eat, the sights you want to see, the things you want to do. So it's very different and you know, when you're with your parents, I guess you sort of default to relying on them to navigate, to handle all the interactions with different people. But when you're traveling without your parents, it's a much different feeling, um, which I really enjoy. So I do want to explore more of China by, well, not by myself, but, you know, without my parents. (laughs) You mentioned that you feel very shocked about the dramatic changes in China. I want to ask about the culture shock. Was there any when you were visiting China as an Australian? Perhaps sometimes just feeling a bit overwhelmed by how busy and lively everywhere is with people. I don't think I've experienced too much of a culture shock in China. I think that might be because my parents have always talked about, oh, you know, China is so different to how when we grew up and, you know, they always talk about it with us. So I sort of had this expectation that, you know, things are a bit different in mainland than what my parents are used to. I guess another one I think would be in China, particularly relevant for Melburnians, is that I remember my dad complaining about the lack of good coffee in China. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, the only thing available is Starbucks. And I remember this was back in 2010. And I think the equivalent cost of a coffee at Starbucks in China was about $7 or something really expensive. And back in 2010, Melbourne coffee was about $3 or something. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that was being a funny story that my dad was always like. We are facing inflation anyway. Who knows if we are going to have a $7 coffee here in Australia. But I want to add a question. I'm thinking whether the reason why you don't feel that much culture shock is because of the language you use, for example, with your relatives back in China. Do you speak Chinese or Cantonese, Mandarin with your relatives in China, or you speak English with them? My extended family don't speak English at all, so I speak Cantonese when I go back with them. So it's completely all in Cantonese. I know that when I speak with them, I have to be more mindful of my speech because, you know, in Australia, I speak a bit of Chinglish. (laughs) So if I don't know the Cantonese word for something, I would just say the English word and my parents will understand me fine. But when I am back in China with my relatives, I have to use Cantonese words. I can't use English. And sometimes that slows my speech down a lot. So in that way, I do sort of change my language and I have to think really hard (laughs) about using the right word and what word to use. Maybe in that sense, I am also changing my personality a bit more because I'm so used to speaking Chinglish in Australia that when I don't, and when I force myself to not use English words, I am more in my customer service persona. That makes sense. The word for it is like code switching, right? But it's kind of more extreme because it's sort of like a full body identity shift that when you like completely switch languages, right? Whereas I feel like code switching is like when you use the same language, but speak it maybe a bit differently. I agree. It is a bit more of a complete body shift or a persona switch. Yeah. More than just code switching. It's interesting. I think that it also goes to the fact that perhaps I'm not that close with my relatives because, you know, I only saw them once a year when I was growing up. And then now with being more busy, I see them every few years. 
and just not being able to connect through what I'm like comfortable with, so English. I think that's put a distance between myself and my relatives, but also because I am the baby of the family by many, many years. So, you know, I always get treated as the baby, but also just that I don't have that same sort of connection with my cousins. Like my cousins are all 12, 15 years older than me. Do you feel that you also experience this cold switching when you are back to Australia? When I, you know, step back into Australia, I always feel a sort of sense of relief stepping back into Australia. I definitely no longer have to constantly think about finding the correct Chinese words to express my thoughts and don't have to be someone that's not completely me. I mean, in a way, me in China is still me, <laughs> and but the Australian me is the one I am most of the time, and so therefore I'm most comfortable with. But yeah, I mean, having said that, I remember coming back from Japan once. I spent five weeks over there for homestay, so I was super used to how polite everyone was and how willing to accommodate foreigners they were. So I had a bit of a culture shock when I landed back in Sydney and was directed abruptly by airport staff. I think it took me a moment to process what happened and it took me a moment to think to myself, oh yeah, right, okay, so <laughs> yeah, this is how it normally is in Australia. I'm back home. <laughs> yeah, different norms in like different Asian countries as well, right? Like even comparing China to Japan. Or even just within China. Yeah. My impression is that it's sort of, it's more curt and abrupt in the North, right? And in the South, it's a little nicer. I don't know if that's correct. True or false? Yeah, but also like, even if we think the South, there's different level of niceness. Right. Like different types of being nice as well. So that's my feeling when every time when I travel back to China and or go to different cities. My next question for you is that now looking back to all these trips to China after being stuck in Australia for two years due to the pandemic, how do you feel about the country? Is it different from the China that you learn from your parents? honestly feels like just another foreign country to me. <laughs> I mean, I know this is called homecoming. This episode is called homecoming, but I don't really feel that sense of, ah, I'm home sort of feeling. You know, as I said before, Australia is my home. So that sense of homecoming only comes or only happens when I step back in Australia. So looking back on all my trips, like I've said, I've seen the country grow, develop and modernize. So every time we went back, we would stay at my grandparents' place, and that area has certainly seen many changes and re redevelopments. The most significant part was the new metro line, but it's interesting to see that that area is such a, a mishmash of the old and the new. You know, you have cracked concrete pavements next to modern office skyscrapers. You have a beautiful five-star hotel next to old school bus stops and run-down mum and dad shops. Even my parents were quite surprised about the developments and changes themselves but I don't know if this is um, a side point but um, how I feel about China and like the whole Chinese identity and you know what I've learned from my parents is that my parents sense of identity tends to be what I would say more single faceted which I understand because they grew up in China for 25 years they've established their identity as Chinese through and through and so I don't know how much they would identify with being Australian you know but compared to myself I consider myself someone who has Chinese blood in me and I was raised in a Chinese family in a western society but I see my identity as multifaceted so I 
see myself as someone who is Chinese Australian, but ultimately I see myself as Australian first and foremost. I don't know if how you feel about it, Mark. Well, I know you grew up in Australia as well. Yeah, pretty much feel the same way because it's different for our parents' generation and us, right? In terms of like when our parents left, they had like roots that they had put down there that they had to pull up to kind of get over here. Whereas, I don't know about you, I left when I was four, so there were no roots of which to speak for me, right? Like, all my roots are here, like my, you know, study, work, all of that is based in Australia, and I can only see it being based in Australia for the future. But I also think that, like, picking up on what you said before, about how, like, your parents get surprised when you, when they go back as well, it's like, the China of today isn't the China that they left either, right? And, like, you know, I'm sure that as much as they feel Chinese still, seeing how much China is changing. No, I feel like my parents feel more Australian every day, like more than they have in the past. Like, I feel like it's a gradual kind of thing with them, whereas there was never really any alternative for me. But I don't know, maybe that's just my family. No, I definitely agree with that. I think my parents have mentioned that, you know, their views have become more westernized as well over time. I think that is true. I don't think they've got gotten to the point where they would say or label themselves as just Australian, you know, they would, they might say they're Chinese Australian, but the Australian part is more like they're Chinese people living in Australia rather than myself, which I would identify as Australian first and foremost. I don't know <laughs> about you, Mark, um, but I know when someone asks me, oh, hey, where are you from? I always say I'm Australian and I don't mention that I'm Chinese unless they specifically ask me what my background is. Yeah, exactly the same. I probably said this in an earlier episode, but when I when I went and studied abroad in America, people would ask where you're from, and I'd be like, I'm Australian. That's where my accent's from. My Australian accent got broader when I was surrounded by Americans. <laughs> One of the reasons that our parents' generation, I don't know, even like myself to some extent, uh, have like misgivings about calling Australia home, right, is that there is still, I think it's yet to be like proven that we are welcome here <laughs> based on the fact that racism and discrimination still exist and stuff like that. So I don't know if that's something you've experienced or if that's something you've thought about. Yeah, it's something that I haven't really thought about. And now thinking about it, I think that might be something to do with the fact that I was lucky enough to grow up in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne where it's probably more multicultural and more accepting of people from a minority group and so I was lucky enough to grow up around other Chinese Australians or other Asian Australians so I didn't really feel that much discrimination or didn't feel too much of not being welcomed. Of course we do experience racism and I certainly have experienced it but from what I've heard from other people they've experienced much worse than myself. So in that way I don't think being a minority has really played too much into my, my sentiments about calling Australia home but there's always the myth as well about model minority. It's not really helpful. Asians as a minority are meant to be, you know, the smartest or the hard work, most hardworking. And so they're the model minority. Everyone should look up to them and that they don't have a right to complain because they are already in a privileged position amongst the minority groups. I don't think that's very productive. I think everyone's struggles are valid. At the time that we record this episode, we have had a new government and we have seen a new record of cult representatives, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds being elected in the parliament. It seems that there's new future or new images of the multiculturalism in Australia. It seems that our parliament finally picks up 
this policy in a good way. What would be your thoughts on this? I think it's a great change. It's definitely a right step forward. I would say there's a lot more to do. I'm so so happy that there are people from culturally and linguistic diverse backgrounds in Parliament because while we are a minority, we're still a significant part of Australia, and so it is important that our voices are represented in Parliament. Our views and our values are all expressed and reflected in policy in legislation. I feel like a lot of us Asians tend to shy away from leadership positions. I don't know if that's just how we were brought up. Or you know, try to keep our head down, not cause too much attention to ourselves. So I'm glad that that is changing, and that you know there are people who are reaching out for the top job or for leadership positions. It's great for the younger generation; they have role models to look up to. That's exactly something that I want to pick up because obviously Chinese English is designed for young people from the Chinese Australian community, and. As a journalist myself, and also as someone who covered the whole election, I can see that there has been a narrative talking about how previous governments abandoned the young generations, and the election result is a reflection for people asking for changes, not just issues of like climate action, but also in terms of the multiculturalism, in terms of young people about young people from multicultural community. My question to you is that: How do you see yourself as a young Chinese Australian? <laughs> how do I see myself as a Chinese Australian? That is a very interesting、um, question. It's not just Chinese Australian, but young Chinese Australian. I think the I've come to a point where I am now very comfortable with who I am. So I'm no longer fighting between am I Chinese or am I Australian, like Caucasian Australian, or am I whatever. I think I've come to a point where I'm very comfortable with just being Chinese Australian as its own unique identity. Yeah, I like to sort of think of this as a third space, <laughs> as I like to call it. You know, we're not completely Chinese, we're not fully Anglo Australian, but a we're a unique combination of traits from both Chinese and Australian culture that creates this. Entity called、um, the Chinese Australian, and you know, being Chinese Australian means that you've probably experienced going to tutoring on the weekend for maths or piano <laughs> or Chinese, and it may also mean that you've unfortunately experienced some discrimination back when you were young. You know, bringing your dumplings to school,、um, people would say, "Oh my God, that's so smelly," or you know. Bringing sugarcane juice or something, but being told that that sugarcane juice looks like something else, even though sugarcane juice looks exactly the same as apple juice,、uh, <laughs> you know. But it's also about being proud and happy and embracing your cultural roots as well as your your Western values. So you know, it's a nice sort of mixture of the two. And being young Chinese Australian, I think. You know, it's there's so much out there that we have yet to explore, and I think that we have so much opportunity in front of us with the development of Australian society becoming more multicultural, more embracing and accepting of these different cultures. We are in a very great place to spark change. So maybe the previous generation didn't have as much opportunity to make the changes because of structural obstacles or institutional obstacles, but for us. 
in a rapidly changing society and more accepting generation, I think our generation is the one who's going to make the most changes and hopefully make a more inclusive society for others. So, yeah, I'm very positive about young Chinese Australians and um, I hope to see more of us, you know, represented in parliament, represented in entertainment, represented in traditionally non-Asian fields as well. Wow, so this is the final episode of Chinese-ish. Mark, how are you feeling right now? Yeah, feeling a mixed bag of emotions, really, I guess. Glad that we've been able to tell the stories that we have. Yeah, most of what I'm feeling is good emotions, just pretty validated on the whole, I would say. Just because, like, I feel like a lot of guests have kind of shared stuff where they've been like, oh, I'm not sure if this will make sense. And then they go on to tell, like, absolutely the most relatable story ever that just makes complete sense to us. And, you know, I think that's been a really wonderful feeling. I hope our guests and listeners have kind of felt the same way, just sort of validated and represented by the stories we've shared. What about you, Wing? I feel slightly different from you because when you said that making this podcast make you feel that lots of people are sharing the experience that you have, for me, it's more like a learning process. Like I'm learning a group of people who shared a similar heritage of me, but their lifestyle is completely different. And also the way of them thinking is different as well. So for me, it's a learning process and it puts me into back into that whole conversation about how diverse the Chinese community is and, and also why we decided to make this podcast because the community itself is so diverse that it's hard to talk about it as a whole. You have to like talk about it from a really niche way. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Were there any contrasts that you sort of weren't aware of before, I guess, that really sort of came up in the course of this podcast? Oh, yes, definitely. Like one thing that I was really surprised, which could be also surprising, is how Chinese Australian kids also need to go to tutoring schools. Because in the past, in China, they all said like, oh, the Western education, so friendly, so open-minded. Tutoring school, definitely a no in Western education. But then... When I was doing this podcast, I was just so surprised and so shocked to learn that you and other guests all went to tutoring schools, from maps to piano. I was like, wow, so it's not just kids in China doing this. Like Chinese kids, Asian kids in Australia are doing this as well. Yeah, yeah. I guess if you miss home enough, you'll start setting up tutoring schools in Australia if you're a Chinese person. I feel like that's, yeah. Because all the ones that I know and went to are like run by Chinese people, like Asian people at least. So like a bit of home, away from home. Mm. But there's also something that really surprised me outside the whole production and it's from one of the feedback that we receive from the community. After the episode about making friends coming out, we received a feedback from someone who's probably in their 40s and they were saying that this was exactly the same to me like 20 years ago. And I was really surprised because it seems that there are some issues that this community face are not just young people issue. It's been like across generational issues. But now today, the young people are talking about it and they're hoping to get it resolved. I think what would be happening today with our community in Australia, I guess, is that probably like more overt forms of racism might be, you know, fewer and fewer these days. But I think like the dynamics are still kind of there, you know, and I think we all kind of 
experience similar sort of feelings of difference still. And yeah, I guess it's worth talking about. I think I was most surprised by the sort of range of guests that we were able to speak to and the kind of diversity in among that group. I guess the only thing that all the guests really had in common were that they were sort of young or young-ish Chinese Australians, right? But that we talked to a really diverse group, included everything from a social media influencer to an Olympian, which I think really speaks to the sort of depth of contribution that young Chinese Australian people make to Australia as we know it today. And while that might come with a bit of tension, and while it might not be always be the easiest thing to do, I think it's just, yeah, really heartening to see how many of us there are and the types of things that we get up to that break stereotypes and break the mold, perhaps. So what do you think you could take away from doing this podcast? Oh, gosh. I think a big takeaway for me is, I guess, related to that idea of the diversity among the guests, right? Is that like, you know, we have the freedom and the capacity now to write our own story. That sounds really, really cheesy. But I think that there are so many sort of people out there blazing paths, you know, in their own fields doing really awesome, excellent things. And I think that there's so much opportunity to like go out there and do the things you love and represent yourself fully. Yeah. What about you? Any takeaways for you? Yeah, I think as a journalist myself, I do think a lot about how I could do better coverage on young people issues after doing this whole series of podcasts. Because as you mentioned, that we have this wide range of young people of Chinese heritage who are just so amazing and they have so many great opinions about their life, about their future. And and it's not just about diversity, it's also about the energy from the young people as well, how much they care about the life, how much they care about this country, their community, and also the world. While your takeaway might be from the diversity and the Chinese community side, for me, What I really feel is the power of young people and especially the power of young Chinese Australians, because I definitely agree with you in the past when we do this coverage about Chinese Australians, we don't really look into the young people's voice. And I'm so happy that this time we have this platform to explore and present their voices through the podcast. And it's so great to work with you, Mark. I learned a lot. For sure. Yeah, it's been a great experience. Thank you once again, for the last time perhaps, for listening to Chinese-ish, an SBS podcast about young Chinese Australians for young Chinese Australians. And my name is Wang and I'm co-hosting this with Mark. If you're interested in more other wonderful SBS podcasts, feel free to download the SBS radio app and explore more. Absolutely. And thank you as well to the lovely group of people who have helped us along the way, including in particular our sound designer, Max Gosford, and the SBS team, Rachel Sibley, Carolyn Gates, and Tanya Lee. And if you want to know a little bit more about two of us, feel free to follow us on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. Yeah, I'm a bit less active, but if you're into Mariah Carey, that's pretty much all I talk about on Twitter. My Twitter is a dark and scary place. Maybe just follow Wing on Twitter. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye.